0: Did you all have a nice Thanksgiving? (laughs) Yeah? Yeah. Only one family fight. Awesome, congratulations. Anybody have any really good food? Yeah? Just real quick, call out, what's your favorite Thanksgiving food? Mm. For me, it's always been pumpkin pie. I could eat entire pumpkin pies all by myself. Um, And I have in the past, um, much to my own chagrin. Uh, However, um, April of 2020, I lost my sense of taste and it never came back. Um, Three weeks ago, I lost my sense of smell and it has come back slowly. So I've got little bits and pieces of it left. So there were certain foods on Thanksgiving that I could experience. I'm not gonna say I could taste them. I could experience them. I could sense their essence. Um, and this became a topic of conversation as it always does at big meals surrounded, uh, the holidays about food, when you're at the table with somebody who can't taste it. Um, and the conversation is always the same. People always say two things to me. Number one, they say oh, my gosh, I don't know what I would do if I lost my taste. I'd be miserable. I think I would die. And I think to myself, thanks for the reminder. And then the second thing they say is, well, if I, if I couldn't taste anything, I would just eat broccoli and kale all the time. I'd finally get in shape, and I'd be fit. Again, they look at me saying this as if, you know... There's maybe something more to this than just being able to taste things. So that was fun. That was super fun. Um, But I got to explain to people and watch their eyes glaze over that uh, there is so much more to food cravings than just you thinking about how much you like the taste of that thing. Because I found myself, and it's been almost four years now, and I still have cravings for specific food that I know I cannot taste. I'll be like, oh, man, what I wouldn't give for a cheesecake right now. But it's just a kind of bland nothingness to me. But my brain wants it so badly. So I got to explain to people on Thanksgiving. I think I explained about five seconds of it before people just glazed over and started thinking about something else. But that so much of the cravings that you feel are not you feeling it. It is a manipulation of your mind from your gut microbiome as in the hundred trillion independent living creatures that consider you their entire universe, who live and reproduce and die in your stomach and intestines. And when you eat certain foods regularly, you are selectively breeding the sorts of microbes that eat those foods. So if you eat a lot of sugar for a while, the microbes that love sugar will multiply. Whereas the microbes that don't will die off of starvation. And now before you know it, all of your microbes love sugar. And so when they're not getting the sugar that they're used to, they will manipulate your brain. They will emit chemicals and hormones into your body that make you want um, that particular food. You think it's you, wanting this food, but it is actually microscopic creatures living inside of you, making you think that. I'm serious. They can even control, um, well, so 95% of the serotonin that your body produces is produced in your gut. Serotonin is uh, one of the neurochemicals that gives you joy, pleasure, Um, when you lack serotonin, you get really depressed and angry. And so, you know, if you've been craving this food and you're denying yourself because you're on a good diet because it's January 1st and you just are so mad at everyone in your life, that's the microbes making you miserable so that you'll give in to their demands. They are terrorists that live inside of you. I'm serious. There was a study recently, it's a fascinating study. They took a group of uh, middle-aged alcoholic men who had been drinking uh, for for years and years and years. They all had uh, liver disease and were looking to to change because they couldn't kick this addiction to alcohol. And for half of the group, they gave them a uh, fecal transplant, which is exactly what it sounds like from a donor whose body did not have those microbes that enjoy alcohol. And they did this fecal transplant on these men, and 90% of the men who received it reported no longer craving alcohol, and were able to stop drinking entirely. 90% 90% of them were able to stop drinking alcohol because they replaced the microbes in their gut. So how many people do we know who struggle with alcoholism, and we think that it is their, uh, some kind of moral failure on their part, or even some kind of broken brain, that it's them that's the problem, when in reality there is just a host of creatures that call you their entire universe, who are manipulating your brain into uh, getting what they desire. You, friends, are not one person. You are not one being. You are a universe unto yourself. You are an emergent phenomenon, more like a flock of birds or a school of fish. You are like a beehive with legs. And even if you take a step back and you think, well, it's you know, I've got my microbes and then I've got me and my brain and my singular self. No, that's not true either. There was this period of time in the mid-1900s when uh, doctors were... Uh, splitting the corpus callosum in the brain, which is the connective tissue between the left and right hemispheres, for people who had really severe epilepsy. Because they found that if they severed that link between the left and right brain, the brain can still function, and they no longer have seizures. And so they were doing this for a while, back when you know medicine was uh, a little more Wild Westian. And this fascinating thing started to happen to people the left and right sides of their bodies started acting independently. Because the right side of your brain controls the left half of your body and the left side of your brain controls the right half of your body. So there were reports of people who were looking through their closet for clothing and would pick out an outfit and be looking at it while the other hand without their knowledge would pick out a totally different outfit and try to put it on. There was a person who reported trying to open the door while the other hand kept closing it. Um, There was, this really fascinating experiment done with, uh, there was a kid named Paul who had this done to him, and they, uh, they put a blinder right here, so only his left eye could see over here, and only his right eye could see over here, and they asked certain questions of him with, uh, with note cards that only one eye could see, and then asked him to respond by moving Scrabble tiles to spell out the answer with one hand or the other. And they asked him, what do you want to be when you grew up? I want to be a dentist. A dentist. Theo wants to be a dentist. The right side of his body spelled out architect, a very good left brain sort of profession. The left side of his body spelled out race car driver, a very good right hemisphere sort of personality. But the, if I get it right, the right brain doesn't have a speech center, so all your communication comes from the left side. So there is this whole side of your brain that is a thinking, feeling thing that has no way of communicating. And once you sever that connection, it's no longer tied to the other hemisphere, and it can kind of think and act independently without consulting with the other side. Have any of you ever felt like you are just filled with conflict inside of you? that I don't know why I keep doing this thing I don't want to do. I just, I feel like I'm going crazy. I tell myself, I'm gonna do this today, and then I don't. The nighttime me that says I'm gonna wake up at six and go running in the morning, and then the morning me that says, oh, no, you're not. You are not a singular person. You are not one unified brain controlling this meat machine. You are a multitude. You are a committee. I have dozens of other examples that I could give you about the way that you are not one unified thing, but actually a universe within yourself. But I am not going to spend the rest of the time geeking out in front of you. We can talk later if you want to talk about the battle between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems or whatever. But the point being, you are a myth that is the you that exists as a singular thinking feeling rational unified being is not real I'm sorry to break it to you that's a story that your neocortex invents so that you can get up and go to work in the morning otherwise I don't know how we would function without this convenient narrative The reality is, friends, that you are a luminous ecosystem. A miraculous emergent phenomenon. You are a way for the cosmos to know itself. So is it any wonder that you are just as complicated as the cosmos from which you came? And I bring this up now, in this time, thinking about this story from Jesus. Because I want to help you today to rethink the way that we do spiritual growth. Because there's this model that we've followed for thousands of years, the singular model of the I, of the me, the only thing that that truly exists, the unified I, in which we say, I desire change, and then I change. This is all spiritual disciplines, really. I have the willpower, I ask God for stick-to-itiveness, and then I do it. Whereas I want us to think more about us being a communal model, in which we say, hey, some of us in here desire change, and so we're going to have to work it out in committee. And I wonder how, it would, how you would think differently about yourself if you thought of yourself as a committee. Because I imagine most of you have been on committees before, right? I see you smiling. You know. When has there ever been a productive committee in which every single person was on the same page? Never. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> so what this means, friends, is that we have to have grace for ourselves when we think, feel, and act in ways that we don't want to. And we need to find holistic methods to engage with every part of ourselves. The shadow self, the light self, all of us. And we never stop working it out. As we know that the God who sees our many moving parts understands and sees the heart of who we are. Just look at the text that we read today. In this parable, and... Remember, this one is a parable, um, just like all the others. So please don't imagine that when you die, you will be herded into two categories of good and bad, and one for destruction and one for... This is a parable, just like the others. People in this parable are divided into two camps for judgment. And now if you were a deity, and you were separating the good and the bad, one for... Uh, you know, promotion and one for demotion. What criteria would you use? You are a deity, a creator, above all things. You are organizing a people. How would you separate people? I think most of our conceptions of God would be that you would separate them by their religiosity. By how often these people uh, get up early to pray. By how many sins they've committed since the last time they asked for forgiveness. Um, How many sins they're aware of. How many things they're calling sins. Uh, This is one of the things that continually I get yelled at on Instagram about. For denying that certain things are sin when it's so clearly in the Bible that they are. And I'm leading people astray. But God never promises to use that as the criteria by which people and these sheep and goats are judged. No, these people are judged simply by who they were when no one was paying attention to them and when they weren't thinking about it. Do you notice that, that both the sheep and the goats in the parable were surprised by the metric by which they were judged? None of them saw it coming. Uh, I imagine plenty of them were religious, plenty of them thought they knew God, and they probably imagined that they were going to be judged in the way that we judge ourselves, through how good we are and how much good we do in the world, and the kind of the net balance between our sins and our righteousness. But instead, they were being judged by how they acted to others when they were on autopilot. How the collective you, that is you, that is the multitude within you, moves through the world. Do you move through the world with compassion or disregard? With kindness or callousness? Are you benevolent to the public but awful to your family? Are you a keyboard warrior on Facebook but tip 10% at the diner? We look at the outward actions of individuals, but God sees to the inward reality of the multitudes which we contain. So what does any of this mean? How can we possibly hope to grow spiritually if we have to consider multiple personalities, dozens of discrete neurological systems and more bacteria than there are stars in the sky? First, I would say take a breath. <laughs> Let's do that actually. Take a breath. Activate your parasympathetic nervous system. <sighs> Acknowledge how unbelievably complex you are. <sighs> And give yourself some grace when you don't live up to your own standards. And now whatever level of grace you've now allowed yourself, understand that God has allowed you more than that already. You have a Savior who has lived in one of these wacky bodies and has already forgiven mistakes you have yet to make. So we can breathe. We can have grace for ourselves. Second, I'd invite you to engage spiritually with your whole self. Traditionally, many religious spiritual practices have focused around transcending the self. Right? It's been about denying yourself so that your spirit may rise above this fleshy prison. As if there is a separate soul that is conscious of, apart from your neural networks. And I think there's probably some good in there, but it misses the richness that is you as a human universe. (laughs) Try instead to incorporate the many other ways of knowing which you are capable of. Invite them all to interface with your shadow side as well as your light side. For example, you might locate in your body where your anger resides. When you are overwhelmed with that feeling of anger, instead of denying it, locate how it feels and where you feel it, and then force yourself to feel it physically. Maybe you want to spend time in prayer, but instead of trying to escape from your mind, Intentionally surround yourself with some beautiful earthy fragrance that you can enjoy with that part of your body. Maybe you want to share your favorite meal with someone who can never pay you back. And as you do, notice how each and every flavor complements the love you are creating with this person. There's a million ways of doing this that make sense to you as an individual that might not make sense to me. So experiment. The point is that spiritual growth is not just an intellectual ascent to being a better person. It is a full-body journey towards knowing yourself and noticing the world around you. And finally, remember, Christ is within every single person that you meet no matter how rich or how poor they are, as in our reading. Whether it's someone that you love or someone that you want to punch in their big stupid face. Mm. Glory hallelujah. Christ is in that big stupid face. (laughs) That person contains multitudes just as you. They are in and of themselves a luminous ecosystem. A luminous, punchable ecosystem. And we need to see Christ in them just as we desire them to see Christ in us. And so, just as you have learned to have grace for yourself and the many personalities which are warring within you, so too. May you grow in the grace and the vision to see that and allow that for other people. May you allow the same complexity in others that you experience within yourself. And may you grow in acceptance of that own complexity within you. And as we go and as we grow, may... We come to see ourselves as a luminous ecosystem, a blessed universe, a conflicted council as opposed to a singular broken individual. You contain multitudes. You are a miracle, friends. So let us pray.